If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Gawthorne. Today's episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where expert historians respond to popular online search queries and questions that you've submitted via our social media channels. This time, the topic is Britain in the 1960s, and our expert is the historian, author and broadcaster Dominic Sambrook, who's the author of White Heat, A History of Britain in the Swinging 60s. Putting the questions to him was BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dominic Sambrook for the latest of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts, which today is on Britain in the 1960s. Dominic's a historian, author and broadcaster who's written several books and presented many series on post-war Britain, including White Heat, A History of Britain in the Swinging Sixties, which is probably the most relevant for today's discussion. Dominic's also a long-standing contributor to BBC History magazine, and he's written our anniversary section for the past seven years. And he also recently launched his own podcast, The Rest is History, alongside fellow historian Tom Holland, which, of course, you should be checking out once you've finished with this episode. So, Dominic, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you, Rob. Um, yeah, it's nice to be on Britain's second best uh, history podcast. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's, uh, thank you for having me on. It's a real, it's a real pleasure. And I suppose, full disclosure before we start, um, neither of us was actually alive in the 1960s, although, of course, no. you, you've spent a long time researching Stuck in the 60s, it. yeah. So, actually, I, I was wondering... Does that affect at all how you tell these kind of histories and research them when you know that a lot of people reading them will have lived through these times? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Obviously, most historians, so most of the people you have on this podcast or most contributors you have to BBC History magazine are writing about periods they didn't live through. So from that perspective, that's no difference. I mean, you get somebody to talk about ancient Egypt or the French Revolution, they didn't live through that either. But you're right, there is a different element, which is that a lot of the readers will have lived through it. So they often have strong views. And when I first started doing this, so the the sort of books on the late 50s and 60s were my first sort of foray into, into sort of po- popular history, um, I had quite a, a, a wake-up call um, at the beginning when I used to give talks about the books. And basically the talk, I'd give the talk, and then the questions consisted of people telling me how wrong I was. Um, often... And often arguing with each other about why I was wrong. So there'd be some people who said, oh, the 60s were nothing like that. They were much more colourful. And there'd be other people who said, no, they weren't colourful at all. Um, And I think ultimately what you have to do, I mean, the point of doing it as a historian, of wearing your historian's hat, is you're you're sort of trying to get away from that and to get away from the the subjectivity, from the sort of prison of your own memory and to bring a bit of perspective to bear on it. Um, but you're right, there is always an element of, you know, you're very conscious that your readers have strong views and they have their, they have their own very, very powerful memories of a particular time. And 
maybe that means you tread just that little bit more carefully because you know, you know, people are waiting to catch you out, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose, I don't know whether for you the process changed when you started moving into the 70s and particularly 80s, which you obviously would remember. Does, yeah. Did you did any of your own memories come into writing those books then? Yeah, that's a that's a, um, a that's another really good question. So, um, not so much in the seventies because I was so small in the seventies. I mean, my seventies really were sort of space hoppers and 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 nursery school and Star Wars. Um, but in the eighties, when I sat down to think about that book, the most recent one, which is called Who Dares Wins, um, I had this sort of big list of topics that were the, sort of the obvious topics the political topics and economics and stuff, if you like. But then I also started to think about things that I remembered. So, you know, I remembered that there would have been a, a tipping point when everybody, when when you went from nobody at school having a computer and knowing what a computer was to suddenly everybody wanting a, a Commodore 64 or a ZX Spectrum. Older writers haven't really thought about this because it's not something that, you know, impinged on them. They were too busy marching against the miners' strike or something. But... I thought, no, that's really interesting. I want to explore this. And I sort of, other things that I thought about from my own childhood, like um, going ice skating, going tempin bowling, uh, meals out and pizzas and going to McDonald's. I mean, I remember so vividly going to McDonald's for the first time um, for my friend Robert Greenwood's birthday party and it being this sort of transformative moment. And I thought... You know, I really want to dig into the history of this because this was something that was clearly an important social and cultural change, a kind of Americanization and a fast foodization of, of the British economy and of British habits. Um, and, you know, it's possible that I wouldn't have come to those things or they wouldn't if I hadn't lived through them and if they hadn't loomed so large in my own memory. So I think it's a hard balance because obviously the readers, you know, they want to, when, when people buy a history book, they often are, are buying into a sort of sense of an Olympian detachment. You know, you're the historian surveying the field and, mm. you know, in a sort of tradition going back to Macaulay and Gibbon and, Gibbon and all the rest of it. But um, it would be weird to write it without a slight personal element. Um, I think you just have to be careful that that personal element doesn't creep further and further in and overtake the rest of it. Um, but it's a fun kind of... It's a fun balance to be striking. Of course. Um, so I suppose we should probably get back to the 60s. And so the format of these podcasts is that we're going to combine popular search queries with some questions that you've sent yeah. in via social media. And I wonder if we could start with a pretty big but important question, uh, an online search query, which is, what was life like in Britain in the 60s? <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a whole that's book a big of many books. That's a big question. Um so what was it like? Well, Britain had come out of the Second World War uh, victorious, but exhausted, a bit grey, a bit threadbare. And then in the early to mid-1950s, there was the beginning of a huge economic boom. So for most people in the 1960s, life was becoming much more affluent, more comfortable than before. People were, ordinary people were, um, they were going on holidays, they were eating out, they were um, buying cars. Most people in this period would have got um, their first or their second TV. Um, they were spending more money than ever before on kind of home improvements and on pleasures and sort of leisure time. It's a period of relatively full employment. So most people are in work. Most people don't go to university. 
but they are reasonably sure that when they leave school, they will walk straight into a job. And if they walk out, if they don't like the job, they can walk into another one straight away. So for ordinary people, I think life, you know, as Harold Macmillan famously put it, most people had never had it so good. Um, and and particularly, this that's the period we associate with young people and with the explosion of teenage culture. And that's because teenagers are working. Um, they have um, more money than any generation before them, more freedom. They're healthier, bigger. Um, this entire new industry springs up to meet their... To, to basically separate them from their money. And that and it's from that that you get rock music and sort of teenage fashion and all those kinds of things, that they're basically driven by the economic boom. Um, and so there's this real sense, I suppose, uh, of, of of life getting better, of optimism. The 60s is the last great moment, really. I suppose maybe the 90s, but the 60s is this sort of great moment of optimism, of a better tomorrow, um, to use the sort of labour slogan from the 1964 election, a better tomorrow is just around the corner. And then an interesting question that um, I suppose you may have touched on this already from Bok Raider on Twitter, who wanted to know, what was the single biggest change to an average Britain's life? Yeah, I think the single biggest change got more, is they've got more money. Um, so their life is more comfortable, it's more affluent. Um, and that gives, from that, everything else so they have more freedom, they have more, you know, the classic thing that people say is the great invention of the great sort of innovation of the 50s and 60s of the washing machine. So you can, you know, you, I mean, it's, that sounds laughable, but that for a lot of people is, is really liberating. Um, so things like that. I think the other big thing I would look at is maybe the role of women, the expanding horizons of women. Um, more women are going to university, more women are entering the workforce. Obviously, you have the arrival of the pill. That's really a 1970s story um, for most women. Um, so there's just this general sense, I guess, of, of sort of freedom and of expanding horizons. Now, we've had quite a few questions coming in about related to this phrase, the swinging 60s. Yeah. So first off, from Vintage Victoria on Twitter, and she wanted to know, how far into the 1960s did things start to swing? And when was this phrase, swinging 60s, actually coined? So the idea of the swinging 60s really comes from a Time magazine story in the middle of the decade about London, the swinging city, um, by a woman called Piri Hellas. It was a cover story, sort of Union Jack, and it was the moment that... Um, that sort of London became cool, which it had never really been um, before that, and Britishness became cool. Um, I think the key thing in the development of the idea of Britain as swinging and of um, the 60s as swinging is the Beatles and the Beatles going to America. Um, so that's at the beginning of 1964. Um, and the sort of swinging era, I guess, is roughly from 1964 to 1967. So, um, and it's, it's a lot of it is about modernity. So the swinging it's not quite the same as the sort of hippie-ish aesthetic of the late, very late 60s. The swinging sort of aesthetic and the swinging ethos is all about sort of hedonism, Michael Caine, Gene Shrimpton, people in sort of plastic clothes, um, uh, British music. Um, and, and that's very much the, you know, that, that's not true in 1962. 
And again, it's not re- no one's talking swinging is old hat by sort of 1968. So it's very much in the middle years, probably 64, as I said, 64 to 67 of the decade when Britishness is cool. Um, but of course, um, well, maybe you'll get onto this, but it, it, it's pretty much an elite thing. So, you know, if you're living in Barnsley, mm. life's not very swinging. Well, actually, yeah, we've got a question on, on that exact point from Stephen Brown at Gale. And he said, how swinging was it really? Were the opportunities and experiences that we associate with the 1960s possible outside of London and or for wealthy people? Yeah, he's quite right. So the assumption behind this is absolutely right. The When, when you look at all the stuff about um, swinging Britain, swinging London, you're talking about an exceedingly small group of people. Um, so roughly that sort of less than 5% of people or so who've been to university and have lots of money and are going, you know, the newspapers and magazines and, and books like Jonathan Aitken's book, The Young Meteors, which is a great sort of swinging text. Um, they're full of all these cool young things who are going to trendy London nightclubs and hanging out with aristocrats and Rolling Stones and all the rest of it. But you're talking about a tiny, tiny group of people. And for most people, you know, most people who don't live in London have never been to London. They're, they're not part of that world. That world is all happening somewhere else. And I think for most people, life just went on, you know, pretty much as it had in, in the 1950s, just a bit richer and sort of shinier. Um, but the swinging stuff, yeah, I mean, it's a. this is the big thing with the 60s, right? So when I first started writing about it, one of the only books that was really available in, in on the high street was a book called All Dressed Up by somebody called Jonathan Green a lexicographer he's best known as and but he was also then a sort of professional 60s memoirist um and his argument or the 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 title came from a um a quote from john lennon who said was asked what happened in the 60s said what happened in the 60s is we all dressed up and this was the theme of the book but of course we is only the tiniest number of people i mean most people didn't dress up at all or if they did they were wearing either a boiler suit or a bowler hat um you know, the, the 60s, the weird thing about the 60s is that the, the memory of it for a long time was almost sort of taken prisoner by a very small self-selected minority. And most people weren't part of that story at all. But of course, the swinging London story is sexy. So people always want to buy into it. And speaking of that sexiness, we had a question from DJ Dan on Twitter, still kind of on this theme. And he said, I have an important question that I was always too cautious to ask <laughs> my parents. I've seen this. I know what's coming. <laughs> so were the 1960s as promiscuous as their reputation? Was it like at school where everyone claims to be having sex or was 1960s Britain, was it actually so swinging, basically, in this kind of sexual side? Yeah, obviously, again, um, uh, he's quite right. The question is quite right. So basically, um, people did do um, sociological kind of research into people's sexual behaviour in the 60s, Um uh, Michael Schofield, as I remember, right, this, wrote a book about the sex lives of young people. And people were maybe a, t- a tiny bit, I mean, I'm talking about a tiny bit, a sort of uh, a fraction of a percent um, uh, more promiscuous than they had been. They had slightly more partners and were active a little bit more, a bit, bit earlier. But, but for most people, you know, life, as I said, um, was pretty much unchanged from the 1950s or so. So the idea that there's this kind of colossal step change and everybody is having orgies and, and behaving in a sort of really debauched way 
is is completely erroneous. Um, now, often people say, well, didn't the pill change everything? Uh, didn't that revolutionise people's habits? But actually, until the end of the 1960s, you could really only get the pill if you were married. So by definition, married people tend not to be immensely promiscuous. So actually, it's in the 1970s and 80s that, that that change really began to work itself out. And actually, if you went, if you got a new TARDIS and you went back to the 1960s thinking you were going to have the time of your life, um, you know, it was going to be like a sort of swing, it really was going to be swinging London, um, you would be very disappointed, I think. Okay, so maybe people don't need to worry too much about what their parents got up to. No, their parents were... <laughs> During hot, that time. Um, there were probably an awful lot of hot water bottles, um, <laughs> more, than, more than people think. Excellent. Okay, so... Um, so the 60s is obviously strongly associated with popular culture. And on that theme, Blake Raspberry on Instagram wanted to know, why did this period see such an explosion of artistic expression from music to clothing to film? Yeah. Uh, so the, the answer is, is economic. Um, people have more money. And um, there's a new market. So there'd always been a slight teenage market. The word teenager comes from the 1930s. It's an American marketing term. Um, and the reason that an American marketing man dreamed it up was because there were new, you know, there were people with money who didn't have money before. And this is sort of a new element of the market. Um, so because of that, I think you get this explosion of energy. And you've also got people, of course, who are coming of age, uh, a sort of new generation who are not really so shaped by the war, um, they were very small in the war. They're not sort of um, deferential like their, their parents maybe were. So there's this sort of explosion of energy. The music is all driven by the by the teenage market. Um, film, you know, you've got colour films, obviously, in the 60s. So colour is becoming the big thing. Um, and it, but, but actually, films are quite traditional for much of the 60s. It's only right at the end and then it's the 70s that you've got the new Hollywood and new directors who are sort of shaking things up there. Um, and some and some other ways, you know, you've got pop art, I suppose, in the, in the arts. But, for example, literature is not especially radical, or I think in the 60s, really. Um, the sort of big guns don't tend to be the people, so Anthony Burgess, Kingsley Amis, William Golding, Doris Lessing, they're not kind of part of the same kind of movement as the rest of it. They're a bit older, actually, a lot of them. Um, but yeah, it does seem, certainly in fashion, music, uh, design, it does seem like a, I think that optimism is really important as well. It's, it's exciting because it's so optimistic, because it's so exuberant. It doesn't have the sort of shadows of the 70s or the other sort of, the the divisive, kind of conflicted side of the 80s and so on. And this is also clearly a time of great political change. And we had a question from Sarah Lautizen on Twitter. Yeah. And she said, what was more prominent and had more of an impact on the general public, either the pop culture revolution or the political revolution? So there is no political revolution. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, I have an so, answer there. So... Um, Yes, yeah, so the, the interesting thing, I, when I saw that question, I thought about it. Um, that's a, The 60s is really one of those eras that people have become distorted in the public mind because people have conflated what happened in Britain with what happened elsewhere, So, particularly with France and America. So in France, you had 1968, the big protests there, the student protests and so on. In America, you had the civil rights movement, and then you had the anti-Vietnam War protests, and you had sort of hippies and the counterculture and all the rest of it. Britain... 
you know, if those things happened at all, like the Grosvenor Square demonstration against the Vietnam War in London, they were copycat. They were imitations of what was happening elsewhere. Most students in Britain voted Conservative. Um, most people weren't students. Most young people, I mean, weren't students. Um, Britain didn't see, you know, Britain's politics, the people who defined Britain's politics in the 60s, uh, Harold Macmillan, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, Harold Wilson, Ted Heath. I mean, nobody, you, you know, not even the most contrarian historian could possibly pretend that these were anything other than pretty sort of establishment figures in their various different ways. You know, even Harold, Labour's Harold Wilson, I mean, he'd been around since the 1940s. So there is no revolution in Britain. There is no political revolution. It doesn't feel like a, um, a new departure. Um, there's no sense, and, and there aren't really the student protests that you have abroad. So, so that's your answer to that question. Now, you mentioned Wilson earlier, and we had a question actually from Mark James on Facebook who asked if he, if Wilson was the worst prime minister of the last century. I mean, I'm a bit surprised at that question because I'd not really heard him described as such before, but maybe you have a take on that. I do have a take on it, and I don't think I would describe him as that either. Um, so Wilson in the 60s, it's definitely a disappointing administration. He doesn't deliver the sort of, the, the new Britain reborn in the white heat of the technological revolution that he wanted to, and his sort of, his various big things, he wanted to um, really modernise British industry and sort out the British economy, which he didn't do. He wanted then to take Britain into Europe, which he didn't do. He wanted to overhaul Britain's relations between the government and the trade unions, which again, he failed to do. So there's a lot of sort of um, failures, but at the same time, that administration presided over what's been called the golden age of the welfare state. Um, you have relatively full employment. Um, it gets lots of things wrong, but it's not disastrous. And it's certainly a lot better than Wilson's second administration in the 70s. I think what the questioner may be thinking about is Wilson coming back later in the 70s. And he does definitely preside over a pretty shop-soiled, shoddy administration from 74 to 76. Um, but I wouldn't... You know, Wilson is grappling with some pretty intractable problems. So Britain's economy has fallen behind its European competitors. Um, Britain is suffering from a bit of a sort of post-imperial hangover, post-World War II hangover. And I don't think that they were in the power of any one politician to reverse, or at least not straight away. So he's definitely not in the top division of Britain's prime ministers. I don't think even his great partisans would, would claim that. But he's is he the worst... I don't think so. I think if he had been the worst in the 60s, it's um, you know people wouldn't have voted him back in, albeit narrowly, in 1974. And a few years before Wilson came to power, we had the great Profumo political scandal. And yeah. we had a question on that from Frank Shepard on Facebook, who wrote in to ask, did many people actually care about the Christine Keeler affair and its potential security implications? Or was there more interest in the titillation of the story? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, again, the answer to that is um, what do most people ever care about? I mean, sex sells. So uh, I, the security aspects were massively overblown. Um, as far as there was a security angle, actually, I think deep down it was pretty negligible. But obviously there was this Cold War spying element. Had the Minister for War um, shared a call girl with a with a Russian spy, you know, that's an exciting story in and of itself. And, of course, that's part of the titillation, the sort of James Bond element. Um, but the, the the sex was probably the key to it in terms of the public 
appetite for it. I mean, it was a newspaper-driven story, um, and the headlines that got public attention were the ones that were sexy headlines. And the photo of Christine Keeler that is well-remembered of her straddling the chair in the darkness, I mean, Mm. that's obviously a very sexually charged picture. And so I think... You know, it's a classic example of kind of a titillating story seizing public attention. But the reason it it got traction, like all scandals, is that it amplified anxieties that already existed about Britain being run by a, a sort of closed, corrupt establishment, an elite that was more interested in its own pleasures than in modernising the country. So in that sense, it was a gift to Harold Wilson and the Labour Party because it... It, it, it came to stand for things that people already were becoming anxious about. Now, that, that feeds into discussion of the Cold War. And we had a question from Simon Van Shake on Facebook who wanted to know, how did normal, and he put normal in, yeah. in quotes, normal people feel about the Cold War? Was it a real threat to them? Well, I like the talk of normal people. Um, uh, what did normal people, I mean, normal people, you know, it was in the background. Uh, so obviously for enthusiasts, as it were, for people who go on marches and get very excited about things, you know, the Cold War might loom larger. If you're a member of CND, which really peaked right at the beginning of the 60s and then declined, actually, after the um, Test Ban Treaty of 1963. Um, If you were a member of CND, then you probably thought about the Cold War, you know, once every five minutes. Um, If you were just a sort of, you know, you're an estate agent from... Um, Barnstable. Did you think about the Cold War all the time? You probably didn't think. It was just a reality. It was just part of the wallpaper. It was something that was always there. There was always that threat of nuclear annihilation. Rather like now, you know, you could ask the same question, Rob, about climate change. How much do most people think about climate change every day? Well, they sometimes think about it. They learn about it at school. Some people go on demonstrations about it and get very excited about it. But do people think about it when they're putting out the bins? Probably not. Well, that's, I think, where the Cold War was. So the Cold War was always there. There was this element of fear. Um, People were conscious of being locked in a kind of global competition with communism. Um, And there were a small number of communists. But by and large, it's, uh, it's sort of off stage. It's there in the background the whole time. It's part of the story, but for most people, it's kind of background noise almost. Mm. And then a popular internet search query on a on a related topic was what wars was the UK involved in in the 60s? What wars? Um, okay, so there were sort of small, um, almost colonial dust-ups. So Britain's withdrawal from empire is not entirely bloodless. There's nothing like Algeria or Vietnam for France, but... Um, for example, in Aden in the Middle East, uh, British troops are fighting against sort of um, insurgents there. Uh, Britain is helping in an undisclosed war, in a kind of secret war, um, in the in the the um, in Southeast Asia. We are helping uh, Malaysia defend itself against Indonesia um, there, and it was called the confrontation, which. You know, got no publicity at all at the time. Um, but the big war, I suppose, or what becomes a war, is Northern Ireland, um, which kicks off at the end of the 1960s. So Britain sends troops right at the very end of, um, or the Westminster rather, sends 
troops, sort of peacekeeping forces. And that then develops into this low-level civil war um, in the 1970s. So that's the obvious one. But by and large, you know, if actually the, the funny thing is if you're looking at the 20th century, the 60s is a decade when Britain is probably less involved in conflict than in almost any other decade of the of the century. So you think about the 40s, obviously, the World War. In the 1950s, you've got Korea and various colonial things. In the 70s, you've got Northern Ireland. In the 80s, you've got the Falklands. In the 90s, you've got Kosovo and stuff. The 60s is actually the, a relative um, oasis of peace in this sort of desert of war, if that's a metaphor. Well, it is now. I've done it. What about Biafra? Um, just, what's the UK's involvement in that? So the UK's involvement in that is... Um, Biafra is this is this sort of attempt to break away in uh, Nigeria, and the government uh, gets a lot of grief um, because it doesn't support um, Biafra, and it's seen as sort of, and it's seen as um, acquiescing, I suppose, in the the suffering in Biafra, in the same way that it was accused of acquiescing in the suffering of Vietnam. So we didn't get involved in Vietnam. Actually, that's the real war I should be talking about is Vietnam. Um, so. Uh, you know, all the all the, the headlines in the late 60s are about Vietnam. And Wilson gets an enormous amount of flack for basically not slagging off the Americans more, more uh, aggressively. Um, but actually, in retrospect, arguably Wilson's greatest achievement was that he resisted the Americans' demands that Britain send troops to Vietnam. He kept us out. Um, and that's probably what should be written on his you know, on his sort of political tombstone, um, that he 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 met, he didn't get us involved in wars um, uh, as a different prime minister might have done. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What they cared about was Britain's status and prestige. They hated to see that reduced. They liked to think of Britain as top nation. But in terms of individual colonies and the sort of which bits of the map were coloured pink, I don't think the ordinary person could care less. Now, a lot a lot of the, the wars that, that have been mentioned related to the British Empire, and this was, of course, the era of decolonisation, and James Dallin on Instagram wanted to know, did the loss of empire affect the quality of life of the average Briton? No, is the short answer. And, there, and, and also, the average Briton couldn't give a damn. So the this is a weird thing, actually, where I probably disagree with a lot of historians. I think there's a lot of historians, academic historians, who are um, fixated on the sort of imperial lens, and they are post-colonial historians or whatever, and they for them, the... the um, Empire is hugely important and everything is seen through the prism of empire and of immigration and race and, and, and things connected with Britain's imperial history. I think for the sort of, to use the the the, the, the previous, previous questioner's formula, the normal person, the ordinary person, the empire is utterly uninteresting and irrelevant. So as each colony achieves independence, there is no political consequence whatsoever there is not one general election in which colonial policy or the future of the empire is even remotely an interesting issue. And, you know, most people struggled to name colonies. They didn't know where they were. They couldn't give a damn whether they were British or not. What they cared about was Britain's status and prestige. They hated to see that reduced. They liked to think of Britain as top nation. But in terms of individual colonies and the sort of which bits of the map were coloured pink, I don't think the ordinary person could care less. And it made no difference to their um, 
own lives. And of course, their own living standards were rising all the time. So they're better off. I mean, they're thinking about the new washing machine and the new car. They don't give a damn that some colony in Africa they've never heard of has become independent. And I mean, at this time, there would have been, I suppose, a growing number of people living in Britain who had moved here from parts of what was the empire. I mean, were they, did it matter more to them when these colonies became independent? That's a really good question, Rob. Um, And actually, my answer to that is probably no, or at least not that I've really seen. Um, I think you're right that obviously people have moved from the Caribbean, particularly um, from the West Indies, uh, or from India and Pakistan, um, which are already independent. So maybe that explains why there's so little interest there. But um, no, I don't really think there is. I mean, there's not not that I've ever come across. And there's no sense of there being a sort of internal lobby um, driven by kind of immigrant voices. I mean, there is a decolonization lobby, but it's kind of, you know high-minded kind of lefty people um, who are white, who are, you know, it's not being driven by newcomers. So, um, you know, obviously immigration is a huge story in the 50s and 60s. But in a weird way, it kind of, that and the the decolonization story are, are much more, they're much more separate in the public mind than you might expect. And now looking at another big global story at this point, which was which you mentioned actually earlier, was the civil rights movement in the US. We had a couple of people asking about that. So there was Eric's Kim on Instagram wanted to know how were people in Britain affected by the US civil rights movement? And then related to that, we had Emily M725, also on Instagram, whose question was, was Britain as racist as America at this time? Okay, I'll take the first question first. Most people sure. weren't affected at all. So there'll be some people who maybe are listening to this who were alive in the 60s who say, hold on, hold on. I was everybody I knew was very passionate about it. And really we followed it and we loved Martin Luther King. And that may well be true. But most people, the majority of people, it was just something a, a, a news event from a foreign country that they had never visited. Um, you know, remember most people in Britain um have barely been abroad. So they've certainly not been to America. So America is a distant country, an ally, of course, a sort of cousin and all the rest of it. But um, it's it's a strange event somewhere else. Some people find it very inspiring, but most people, it's just a foreign news story. Um, there is one community, obviously, among whom it, it, it inspires people, and that's among the immigrant community. Um, so you do have people who uh, have, you know, if you're black um, and you feel that that isolated against you in Britain, you may well feel inspired by the rhetoric of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. But but that's not obviously true of everybody in Britain. It, it, it is galvanising for a few people, but not for, for most. The second question was about racism. Um, you know, this is such a, a, a sort of thorny and, and interesting issue. How do you define um, how racist a society is? Um, what do you mean by it? Is, is are, are most people prejudiced in the 60s? Yes, I think it's probably fair to say that most people did have prejudices that we wouldn't have, or their prejudices are not the same as our own. Um, do most people, you know, are most people sort of racist in the kind of capital letters 
so they're all villains and and all the rest of it. No, I think most people are, are deep down pretty decent. Um, uh, there is racism and there is prejudice, but uh, often it's kind of inherited through people's reading, um, through education, the way they've been brought up, just the sort of assumptions that people had when they were young. Uh, but in terms of do they treat people abysmally? No, they, most people probably don't. Um, so when you, I mean, if you read accounts from people who settled in Britain after the Second World War from the West Indies or from India, you know, they will often say, you know, things were sometimes very hard, people were cruel to you, people were racist and all the rest of it, but also people, other people, unexpectedly, people you wouldn't necessarily expect were very friendly or welcoming or whatever. So it's a kind of variegated picture, it's a complicated picture, and definitely there's nothing like the apparatus of segregation that you had in the American South. So there you've got a society that was a slave-owning plantation society where that legacy is still very much alive in the 60s. Britain doesn't really have that. So you've got a lot of people who've arrived in the last 20 years who face discrimination and face prejudice, um, but there's not the same kind of organised, institutionalised apparatus of, um, of unequal treatment. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of complicated picture. And I don't think, I mean, with all these things about racism, I don't think you can kind of, it's not like you can sort of point to a scorecard and say, well, you're, you're six out of 10 racist and you're three out of 10. Each country has its own kind of organic culture, um, which will involve elements of prejudice and discrimination. That's true of our own as it was of the, Mm. the 1960s. I know some blisters will think this is a very waffly and, and sort of over-nuanced argument. But I think it's really important not to sort of think that, you know, you can just sort of rank societies um, very simply in terms of how racist they are. I don't think that's really how it works. No, and yeah, like you say, it's a complicated issue and each country has has its own story here, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing actually, Rob, that's really important, and, and this is particularly recently, is that people tend to conflate the British and um, American stories. And that's partly because the sort of Americanization of global culture through the internet. And it's also because so many people study the civil rights movement. So they sort of assume, well, the civil rights movement is the big story of the 60s. And most people in the 60s in Britain must have really been interested in it, must have been massively important. And our own story of immigration is exactly the same and all the rest of it. That's not really true at all. Actually, when you go through British papers in the 60s, it's there, but it's foreign news. It's often sort of buried away a little bit. It's not a big deal in the same way that, you know, it, it, in the way that it now looms in our consciousness. Okay, now moving on to quite a different topic. Um, this probably depends on whether you've watched The Crown or not. Yeah, I have. I okay. have watched, I, yeah. <laughs> Great. So we had um, a question from IK Whitehead on Instagram, and they wanted to know how accurate is The Crown's depiction of the royal family in the 1960s? <laughs> Okay, so my take on the crown is that basically the crown has deteriorated in accuracy and in quality from episode one to episode whatever they've reached now. So the 60s stuff is sort of the midpoint, isn't it? There is still some good stuff there. Um, I think uh, there, Harold Wilson is quite good. Um, uh, But I don't think... I think by the 1960s in the crown... The characters are not quite the caricatures that they become by the 1980s, but they're slightly beginning to head in that direction after the much more nuanced kind of Claire Foy and, and Matt Smith stuff at the beginning. Um, but it's still not bad. I mean, the Abba Van episode is, is really moving. Um, you know, 
the it, it it's fine. It's not history. It, it's fine. I think by the eighties, it's become a bit spitting image. It's become very spitting image. Um, but I think the sixties stuff is sort of poised between the really high quality stuff when it, that it started, particularly stuff with George the Sixth and and the young Elizabeth, and then. It's still got a bit of that, but it's beginning to coarsen a bit, the portrayals. And they're beginning to do the sort of... They're starting to play the puppets rather than the people. And obviously there's, there's been a lot of talk actually hasn't there, about the later series and how you how accurate you need to be. And that's, that could be a whole other podcast, I suppose. But Yeah, massive subject <laughs> all in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, just uh, two or three questions left. And we had... There were a couple of popular internet search questions around childhood in this period. So okay. I might just put those together. And they were, what was school like in the 1960s? And what toys did children have in this period? Okay, so toys. Um, people had um, guns. People had a lot more guns than they do now, actually. Um, obviously dolls. For, I mean, toys were very, to use the, the, the jargon... Toys are very gendered. Um, so, you know, a boy would be sort of armed to the teeth and a girl would be sort of preparing for life as Barbie. Um, uh, much more so than now. Uh, but actually, the, the toys, are, toys are remarkably unchanged over the last hundred years or so. You know, the, the if you ever go to a toy museum or something, if you ever drag your kids around a toy museum, as I have, it's, it's, it's odd how little they, they change. Um, Fisher Price toys for small children, I suppose Lego, um, you know, those sort of quite familiar names. Um, sorry, I forgot, I've completely forgotten what the, the other question was. The other was. question was about what was school like at this point. School like. So that's a really big question. I mean, that's a massive mm. question. Um, because schools is such an interesting story. So it depended really on your school. Some schools were very what we would now consider old fashioned, particularly if they were kind of grammar schools. So, yeah, a lot of children in those days did the 11 plus and then went to a grammar school or a secondary modern, though there were obviously now comprehensive schools coming in. And you could be at a very old-fashioned school that was basically like something from Billy Bunter um, or Tom Brown's school days, you know, the sort of the beaks and gowns and, and lots of Latin and sitting in rows. There were some schools that were very like that. Then there were schools that were rapidly modernising where the teachers had imbibed the new sort of ideas about teaching in the round and about more child-centred education. Um, and so they would look much more like the schools we're familiar with right now. And then what you also had in the, at the end of the 60s, and particularly in the 70s, are very progressive schools. So they would be actually go well beyond anything you would see now. I mean, these would be schools in which people would call the headmaster Tim, I mean, Tim being his name, uh, and uh, children would be free to roam between classrooms doing whatever they fancied. And if they didn't feel like doing work, that's fine. They can explore through play and all this sort of stuff. I mean, there was there was one school in London that ends up basically being shut down where the, the, the teachers were accused of using getting the children to play Monopoly so they could learn how to overthrow capitalism. Um, now, this was a bit of an exaggeration, but there were... I think the 60s and 70s is the point at which sort of progressive ideas enter the educational mainstream. And in some cases, they're seen as going too far. And then there's a backlash from about 1978 onwards, first driven by Jim Callaghan and then driven by Margaret Thatcher, which is that progressive education has gone too far. But if you're talking about 
the, the, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say what is the typical school because schools were so different. But I suppose for most people, actually, it would have probably seemed stricter than now. More use of surnames um, rather than first names. Um, stricter discipline. Um, the one thing that doesn't change, obviously, is children. You know, children don't change much when you read accounts of children's behaviour and stuff or children's diaries and things. So um, if you catapulted a child from 2021 back into a school in 1965, they'd probably find their feet soon enough. I might just finish with a couple of questions from the same person, actually, from Anders in Vienna, who asked two quite unusual questions. And the first one was, what did 1960s Britain smell like? Yeah. So... um, I've answered Anders on Twitter, so he knows what I'm going to say. Uh, I sent him a picture of a Vesta curry. Um, uh, what, did Britain, what would it smell like? I mean, that is a great question. That's something that people so rarely think about history, isn't it, Rob? That they, mm. if you went back to, if you got a, if you got your gift and your t- you got your time machine, you went back to meet Samuel Pepys, what would strike you is probably how incredibly dirty people were and how horrifically they smelled. Um I think that's probably true in the 60s, actually, as much as um, of, of earlier periods. So a lot of people were st- still heating their houses with coal. So it's smokier. Um, it's sootier. And there's a sort of smell, I think, a sort of a coalish smell in the streets. Of course, the engines and the cars... And are much less clean than ours, so it's just it smells of kind of engine oil as well, I, I guess. And people probably wear a lot less deodorant and sort of perfume and stuff than they do now. What they do wear is probably very pungent compared with the things we're familiar with. So you're sort of overpowered by by smells, I suspect, in the sixties more than you are today. It smells at once dirtier, but and of kind of body odor, but it also smells of brute if you. You remember mm. brute um, that people have sort of desperately splashed on in an attempt to conceal their their, their reeking stench. Um, so yeah, generally, I think it's it's generally smellier, maybe, and a more aggressive way. And I wonder, do do writers in the sixties do they write about smells more than they do nowadays? If they were so much more pronounced, um, that's a good question. I don't think they. I suppose they don't because they take it for granted. It doesn't strike them that they it doesn't seem that they remark on it i mean the one thing i've really noticed actually is starts in the 60s and then becomes really pronounced in the 70s and then ends in about the mid 80s is people writing about litter um remember the keep britain tidy logo and those sort of campaigns so those stem from about this period people are starting to sort of discard a lot of stuff the beaches and the seas are really dirty rivers are very dirty there's a lot of pollution only just the people campaigning about cleaning things up. And writers talk a lot about how dirty things are, about how much graffiti there is, about how much, you know, sweet wrappers on trains and all this sort of stuff. So I suspect that would, you know, everything would seem cleaner in the sense there are fewer people and there are fewer cars. But, you know, I suspect if you went to, if you got on your time machine, you went to a 60s beauty spot, you'd probably be shocked at how much litter there was. And Anders in Vienna had one other question, 
And that was, what was the most commonly bought items in the supermarket? Well, this is why I sent in the picture of the, the Vesta curry, you see, because it's both smelly and um, a popular supermarket product. Uh, what did people buy in the supermarket? So supermarket, obviously, supermarkets really came in in the late 1940s, early 50s, and then they get bigger and bigger, and you get the first hypermarkets, what we would now call really a supermarket, at the beginning of the 1970s. Um, So supermarkets are much, they're narrower. You go around with your little basket. uh, There's much less choice. People are buying tinned peaches. Um, They're buying corned beef. They're buying Fray Bentos pies. Um, boil in a bag, ready meals. So not ready meals that we would know, but um, to really disgusting <laughs> ready meals. Um, people are buying a lot of fish fingers. I guess fish fingers would be the defining food of the sort of 50s and 60s. And things like sort of, you know, um, Finder's crispy pancake type things. So the new fast food, basically, and frozen mm. food in particular. Um, this is... This is the point when you stop, when you go shopping, when we go shopping now, we, I mean, basically we do it online now often, but when we go shopping now, you do one trip, you go to your supermarket of choice, and then you come home. The 60s is the moment when people start doing that, really, 50s and 60s. So before, there's still a lot of people who go to the butcher, the baker, the fishmonger, they kind of do the rounds, and that's their daily ritual. The 60s is the moment when you do the one shop, when you're starting to do the one shop and you're filling your trolley or your basket with tins, with a lot of unhealth, very unhealthy food. Um, so so that's the sort of tipping point, I suppose. Okay, well, Dominic, I think I've been through all of the questions that, that we, well, all the questions we have time for, but just one last question from me. If you were given a choice, would you rather have been, uh, I guess... A young adult in the 60s or in a period yeah. where you actually did grow up? So the only reason you would say the 60s, I think, Rob, is if you um, you believe that you would have been one of those incredibly trendy people hanging around with Twiggy. Now, that may be true in your case, but I don't have so much confidence. Um, I worry that I would be the person who would become, you know, a trainee loss adjuster in Hull. Um, and the 60s for me would be something that I would read about in the newspapers 10 years after it had happened. Uh, I, 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 as it was for most people. Not that I'm being mean to loss adjusters in Hull. I should absolutely stress that point. But um, I think uh, I think there's no good reason really to pick the... I suppose the only good reason you would say is that you would say, oh, we got on the property ladder and we, um, and you know, you bought our home and we had... But what you've got coming to you if you, if you come of age in the 60s I'd say, is that in 20 years' time or so, you'll be in the, the mass unemployment of the 80s. So you've got all that coming. You've got to live through all the 70s. You might get blown up by the IRA. You know, you're, you're, you've got 25% inflation coming in 1975. Your bins won't be collected in the winter of discontent. You know, you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of grief to come. Um, so would I want to miss out on the pleasures of the BBC Micro and my first McDonald's? I would not. So I would choose to, to stay where I am. That was Dominic Sandbrook. Look out for his anniversaries piece each month in BBC History magazine. And if you enjoyed this discussion, you might also want to check out his book, White Heat, A History of Britain in the Swinging Sixties, which is available now published by Abacus. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Gareth Williams will be speaking about the history of vaccines.